according to his promise. The Wednesday morning volume level check. There we are. Are we acceptable now? I kind of like that booming voice. It inflates my ego a little bit. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, and I trust that you do, unless you're satisfied with the present circumstances in this earth, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25 is our text. Concluding the announcement of Jesus' birth to Joseph and taking a look at the birth of Jesus Christ in this session. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we're filled with the Spirit. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the privilege and blessing we have this morning to assemble together and receive instruction. We ask for distractions to be set aside for your hand of protection upon us this morning as we study your truth. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, in our Harmony of the Gospels, we are wrapping up the sixth section and moving on to point seven this morning in the early portion that is titled Birth, Infancy, and Adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. This sixth area is called the announcement of Jesus' birth to Joseph, and the scripture text for this is Matthew 1, 18-25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. All right, we have examined two of these points of study and left off with the third, I believe. Or did I wrap up all five? Where did I leave off in my notes last week? What do you have? You have a one, two, three, four, and five? We have a four. We've not yet taught the four. Okay. With three C.S., right? We dealt with Dawid, meaning beloved. All right. One item I do want to re-highlight again this morning in case we didn't uh, emphasize it well enough last week was point three. Joseph's intentions were overruled by the faithfulness of God. His intentions were overruled by the faithfulness of of God, and this is something we should be thankful for. This is something we can rest confidently in. I think there's entirely too much doubting that happens in the Christian way of life. And so, for just some short side trips this morning, uh, let me remind you of some things here. First of all, in Romans 14, scripture to bring to your attention. As far as the underlying activity of the Christian way of life is concerned, Romans chapter 14. It says in verse uh, 22, at the end of the chapter here, The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. We're supposed to be walking by faith and not by sight. We're supposed to walk with conviction. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Then we link this immediately with verse 23. But he who doubts is condemned. All right. Now, separating this out for the moment from the issue that the specific item that's being mentioned here is the uh, eating the meat, the sacrifice to idols or the drinking of wine, if that causes your brother to stumble. All those issues aside, the, the fundamental principle applies to all of them. He who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever we do in terms of the Christian way of life, 
we base our decisions upon our understanding of the Word of God. And we have to be able to explain doctrinally what we're doing or what we're not doing, why we're doing it or why we're not doing it. And if we, in our own satisfaction of conscience, can explain what we're doing and why we're doing it, or what we're not doing and why we're not doing it, and do so for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're fine in these areas of doubtful things, in these areas of gray, what we call gray areas or or non-essentials. So we want the walk of faith. We want the walk of confidence. It is described as being happy. What a what a load off our minds. What a relief to simply relax in the Christian way of life and say, I'm okay with what's going on here. And trusting that if I am wrong, if I am wrong, then the Father is going to show me that. That uh, if, if we have a different attitude in anything, the Father will also show that to us as well. He will make things known, as he's doing with Joseph. Joseph is proceeding on the basis of faith and feels that he's doing the right thing, that he was espoused to this virgin, and then she winds up pregnant, and he thinks, okay, well, we'll just divorce this matter. We'll do so privately. We won't shame her or anything. We'll we'll handle this with some integrity, with some righteousness, and then uh, my father will make the... uh, uh, you know, arrangements for a different bride. There's, you know, other virgins out there. We'll contract for another Davidic bride, and and uh, and so forth. Joseph was proceeding under the assumption that he was doing the right thing, and when the Lord interrupts him here, and this angel appears in a dream and says, "Slow down here, Joseph. You're making a mistake. Go ahead and go through with this wedding." Because this pregnancy is not uh, not because Mary was was uh, promiscuous. It's not because of what, it's not what you're thinking. All right. And the angel says, "I know what you're thinking because it's normal. This is how pregnancy has worked for two thousand years, uh, four thousand years. Okay. But this time, trust in the promises of God. And when you examine the whole context of this, you start to really gain a greater appreciation for Joseph's faithfulness to believe this miracle." <laughs> to believe what the angel is saying, that, that this pregnancy is, is brought about by the Lord. Uh, Joseph believed it, accepted what the Lord had said, uh, understood this to be the seed of the woman fulfillment, and uh, woke up believing and took action. And we see that here in this passage. Uh, one other place, if you'll join me back in Second Samuel, and, uh, and, and I just like finding these because they're easy to look at with your own eyes. They're easy to observe. Uh, chapter 7, and if you can see it with your own eyes, it reinforces what we're saying. I mentioned this in passing last week, but sometimes it's, it's more effective just to look at it with your own eyes and see it. Second Samuel chapter 7, it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. Then the king said to Nathan the prophet, this is David now, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. This is a believer who is living the Christian way of life under the concept that we just looked at a moment ago in Romans 14. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in that which he approves. He's walking by faith. He's walking with the Lord. The Lord is with you. He has a daily fellowship. He's walking, and this is a desire on his heart. And David can trust that it's a legitimate desire. He can trust that the desire of his heart is consistent with God's desire because he's being molded, as we say, growing in the, in the Word of God, being molded in the image of Christ. And he's becoming more Christ-like as he grows, so he can trust his heart desires. And Nathan trusts his judgment too. Nathan says, you know, similar to what we examined under judgments and viewpoints, you're forming judgments and viewpoints that are more and more Christ-like the, the more and more mature you become in the faith. And so Nathan says, good idea, go do it. But here again, the faithfulness of the Lord steps forward. Not that David was about to do a wrong thing. Not that David was about to make a mistake or do something sinful or wrong. It's just it was wrong by virtue of the fact that the father had somebody else in mind to build this house. And that was going to be Solomon, the son of David. So uh, in the same night, in the same night, see the Lord's not going to fool around and let this thing start to progress. In the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go, say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? 
See, it's not the wrong idea, it's just the wrong person. God had somebody else designated to do that work. And then he says, you know, I never asked for this. <laughs> I didn't complain. But this was just, it wasn't a have to, it was a want to. David wanted to. And the Lord appreciated that, appreciated the offer. The idea, though, was that it was not for him to do. I think in the commentary of this over in 1 Kings 8, when uh, Solomon is describing this, that he was allowed to build this temple. And he said, you know, my father David wanted to do this, and it was a good thing. It just wasn't for uh, for David to do. So, if... Um, if you want a verse on that, it's in 1 Kings 8, verses 17 through 19. It was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Okay, The idea itself was a good idea. And David's heart was right. His intentions were honorable and, and proper. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house. Okay, so see, as we've discussed answered prayer in the past, sometimes he answers yes, yes, or yes, no, or no, yes, or no, no, where he'll answer the specific desire, but he also recognizes the motivation and answers to the motivation of the particular request as well. Sometimes we're asking for the wrong thing, but the heart is in the right place, as in the example here. So, all of these things come together, I think, to paint a good picture where we can proceed uh, in terms of faith rest, in terms of the Christian way of life, and trust that uh, until he shows us otherwise, uh, we're going to proceed on this basis. And that's ultimately the, the nature of, of not my will, but thine be done, just laying it out before the Father, saying, Father, this is my intention, this is what I'm proceeding, and if I'm wrong on this, then you'll have to make that clear. And uh, trust that he will do so because he doesn't give us, uh, you know, doesn't give us snakes when we're asking for fish. So in the outline, point three, Joseph's intentions were overruled by the faithfulness of God, and we did uh, some subpoints on this in A, B, and a C. So we're ready for point four. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. God, of course, makes the promise. God brings them about. The critic might uh, accuse Christ or his disciples of trying to uh, engineer events, try to doctor up some circumstances and say, oh, well, this is fulfilled prophecy. You know, uh, we might try to, you know, a, a fraud or charlatan today might look, might uh, pull up a lot of predictions. He might pull a thing of, of Nostradamus off the shelf and say, okay, here's, here's a list of a hundred things that Nostradamus said. I'm going to set about now to try to fulfill those through human effort and through other mechanisms. And then we can point to this and say, hey, look at this, fulfilled predictions by Nostradamus. Okay. It was a big demonic fraud anyway, and even the, the things that are marginally close to being possibly fulfilled are, are just shady anyway to begin with, and then much more of his predictions were wrong anyway, if you ever do any study on that. The skeptic and the unbeliever likes to lift him up as some great mystic, but it's really quite tragic and quite pathetic to examine the writings of Nostradamus compared to Holy Scripture where prophecies are made and fulfilled directly, literally, uh, perfectly, beyond anything we could ask or think. All right, verses 22 and 23 here. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet. Interestingly enough, the name Isaiah does not occur here, at least not in the best manuscripts, although um, it's, it's obvious which prophet is involved, the greatest of the writing prophets, in terms of, uh, as we break them down, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so forth. A virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is a direct quote from Isaiah 7.14. We'll look at this here in a moment. Which translated means God with us. The significance of the name translated and the significance of the name realized, even though the particular name not yet um, adopted, not yet assumed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice, in verse uh, 20, 
Back up a couple verses to verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. In other words, she's still a virgin. There's, there's, uh, not only is there nothing wrong with taking her as your wife, but it is the will of God for you to do so, because not only was she selected to be the mother of the humanity of Jesus Christ, Joseph, you have been selected to be the adopted father of the humanity of Jesus Christ, and this is the will of God, so don't be afraid to take her as your wife. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name. Now notice it doesn't say, you shall call his name Emmanuel, for... He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. Okay? Doesn't say that. Could say that. The father could have determined that that uh, he was going to assume the name of Emmanuel in his first advent incarnation, but he did not. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Okay? Uh, from the Hebrew, Joshua. Just like in the Old Testament, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, the one who led Israel into the promised land after the death of Moses. Jesus is the Greek form of the Old Testament Hebrew name, Joshua. For he will save his people from their sins, and we'll look at the vocabulary here in a moment, uh, break it down for you and spell it out. But then verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet. That the Emmanuel prophecy is being fulfilled even though the given name of Emmanuel is not yet being taken by Christ. The given name is being taken as Jesus by the will of the Father. Now, let's look at this. Subpoint A. Before Joseph and Mary are given, I'm sorry, both, both Joseph and Mary are given the naming instructions regarding the name of Jesus. Matthew 121 is in agreement with Luke 131. Of course, Mary was given the name first because she was tipped off before the pregnancy occurred. Joseph uh, was sometime afterwards because Joseph wasn't tipped off until after, uh, you know, after the pregnancy became evident. But they're both given naming instructions regarding the name Jesus. Both of whom familiar with the Davidic covenant. Both of whom familiar with the Isaiah prophecy. Both of whom familiar with the uh, anticipated arrival of the Messiah. Would naturally want to name their son Emmanuel. <laughs> but both of whom are warned ahead of time not to do that. Just as Zacharias and Elizabeth would naturally have wanted to name their son uh, Zacharias Jr. In fact, the family was taking steps to do that. And before uh, you know, Elizabeth put her foot down and Zacharias started writing notes and, uh, and having his voice uh, opened up again. That uh, they, would, they had an intention to name their son Zacharias and the Lord said, no, no, slow down. His name's going to be John. Same thing here. Joseph and Mary might uh, desire to name their son Emmanuel because, well, that's what Isaiah 7.14 says. And here's our baby, and we'll just go ahead and name him Emmanuel. That would be natural to assume, particularly uh, if a fraud was going to step forward and claim himself to be the Christ, which we know there were many at that time. If and in centuries before and centuries later. Many false cries have arisen and continue to arise. If this was going to be something of human effort to engineer to say, hey, look, here's a pregnant virgin and we're going to name him Emmanuel. Okay? That would be, the, that would be what would be expected. But a boy by the name of Joshua um, would not be expected. Okay? Uh, we won't go back and look at the Luke reference. I think you're familiar with that. We recently did the announcement of the birth of Jesus to Mary. Point B. Before Emmanuel can undertake the work of Emmanuel, he must first undertake the work of Jesus. So for this, let's go back to Isaiah and uh, examine it from the prophetic perspective 700 years before the event. And before we go to Isaiah 8, let's look at Isaiah 7. Okay. We'll look at the actual prophecy and then we will see the next chapter what the work of Emmanuel truly is. 
But point B, before Emmanuel can undertake the work of Emmanuel, he must first undertake the work of Jesus. We find the work of Emmanuel outlined in Isaiah 8, but backing up to chapter 7 now, because I didn't uh, turn there under point 4, let's uh, look at it here. This is an invitation that the Lord extends to Ahaz to ask a sign. Even though the general principle and commandment of the Lord is that we're not to put the Lord our God to the test. Uh, that is the commandment. And yet here God is asking Ahaz to do so, instructing him to request a sign. Anything he wants. The sky is the limit. Blank check. Anything you want. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as shale or high as heaven. He's invited to, in his own imagination, to think of the most impossible of impossible miracles ever. Make it as deep as shale or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. <laughs> Alright? In other words, I'm going to disobey these instructions because I don't want to test the Lord. Kind of a catch-22, isn't it? Because by disobeying the Lord's instructions, what's he doing? He's testing the Lord. <laughs> He's putting the Lord God to the test. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of the Lord as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And I think that first phrase is so often overlooked because we're in a rush to get to behold a virgin will be with child. But what precedes behold a virgin will be with child is therefore behold, or therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And that is a miracle. That is an evidence of divine working. And it is as deep as shale or as high as heaven. In other words, it is the most miraculous miracle in the history of miracles. The most momentous event in the history of the outworking of God the Father's grace, eternal plan of the ages. The virgin conception and birth of Jesus Christ. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she, that's the virgin, will call his name Emmanuel. That's the specific reference. Emmanuel in the Hebrew, God is with us. Or God be with us. God is with us. Which is referenced back in Matthew again. Okay? That this is the prophecy that's being fulfilled. And it is being fulfilled. The translation is being fulfilled by virtue of the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, God entered into the human body, entered into the flesh, and dwelt among humanity. And he came to his own in his own Received him not. All of the all of the truth of this name is fulfilled, even though the specific given name is not yet assumed. All right, the specific given name is not yet assumed, and I think there's uh, significance there, and, and more work to be done on that particular item. Now, next chapter over in chapter eight. As we see, these things occurred. Alright? And if you think um, Emmanuel's an interesting name, some of these other ones are interesting too. <laughs> Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. There's a name for you. Now, um, The Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And I will make, I will take to myself faithful witness for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Zer, uh, Jeberechiah. So I approached the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Okay. Now along with the prophecy of the virgin conceiving, now uh, Isaiah and Mrs. Isaiah, the prophetess, are going to have a baby. And his name is not Emmanuel, his name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. In the Hebrew, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And this is paralleled, you know, before swift, swift and speedy. Before swift and speedy can do something, this is going to happen in the generation of Ahaz. 
All right. Back to chapter 7, there's a before promise. Before he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good or uh, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So there's a lot of parallels between chapter 7 and chapter 8. And I hope you can see that. Much more work needs to be done on this. There's books out there that do remarkable uh, here on Isaiah 7 and 8. Short-term promises fulfilled in Ahaz's generation that give the assurance that the long-term prophecies, prophecies that are still 700 years away are going to be fulfilled directly, literally, and so forth. Now, the word of the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Now therefore behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong waters and abundant, I'm sorry, the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. See, the rising empire of Assyria, one of the most wicked empires in the history of the world, is still going to uh, pursue its historical destiny according to the Father's plan. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will, even, it will reach even to the neck, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Now here's the title. Here is the name of God with us and the promise of deliverance. And, uh, of course, Assyria, we know historically, Assyria is the empire that swept away the northern kingdom. Assyria is the empire that came up to the walls of Jerusalem, and Hezekiah was afraid that, that even they were going to fall. And the prophet Isaiah stood shoulder to shoulder with Hezekiah and encouraged him and said no. Then the, uh, the promise here, the remnant, verse 9, Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered, and give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Is that phrase in there twice? It is in my verse. It's in there twice in your verse? Okay. Got a couple of typos in this modern English computerized text. Drop myself a note. All right. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Emmanuel occurs again in verse 10. All right. Now, this references, of course, the day and age in which Isaiah was ministering and encouraging the king Ahaz who is encouraging, king Hezekiah who is encouraging, and so forth. It has a contemporary application for this day, 700 years before Christ, that the Assyrians were to come sweeping in. The northern kingdom indeed was swept away. The southern kingdom was on the edge of that. They were threatened, and, and, and uh, Jerusalem was surrounded to be like, you know, up to the neck, so to speak, if we're sinking, and that's how high the water has gotten. It's up to our neck now. Things look pretty bad, and yet Emmanuel is still with his people. But now think ahead to where this prophecy will have its future fulfillment. Because there is a day future yet coming, where once again Israel is going to be surrounded. Where once again they're going to be up to their neck. Okay? What we refer to as the Second Advent prophecies, what we refer, refer to as the Great Tribulation of Israel, when with the coming of Emmanuel, the ultimate deliverance is then occurred, and the, the ultimate deliverance is then uh, achieved, I should say. This is the work of Emmanuel. Emmanuel is not a First Advent prophecy, even though. The virgin birth is first advent. The work of Emmanuel at shattering the peoples, at putting all the, the human plans aside and thwarting them, the actual reign of God with us is second advent. Okay? Are we okay on that? All right. If I'm going I'm to draw some pictures here too for you. That's the B button, by the way. I had to go all the way to the Philippines to learn the B button. Blanks out the uh, slideshow. All right. Old Testament saints looking forward saw um, messianic prophecies. Okay. They looked forward and that's what they saw. 
we in the uh, and they saw both first advent and second advent prophecies but they did not see distinctions between the two they saw a coming messiah a coming anointed one a coming christ which encapsulated from our vocabulary now first advent and second advent prophecies some of which occur in the very same verse okay we, and these of course are um, humility, born in a manger, you know, the riding on a colt, um, suffering, Isaiah 53, the, the silent lamb that's led to the slaughter. Okay, These of course are glory and power, Okay, coming to rule, here he's coming to serve. All right, and the distinctions were not always clear. In fact, they weren't clear at all. The idea that he was going to come two times with 2,000 plus years in between isn't found in the Old Testament. It's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. We can only see it now because we are in the New Testament, that is the church, and we have a perspective to look at messianic prophecies in two directions. Because here we are. And we can look back at first advent. We can look forward to second advent. And by virtue of the blessings of our perspective in time, we have the clarity to be able to see the distinctions that the Old Testament prophets could not see. They were not in a perspective, in a position to see it. They were not in a in a uh, perspective to see it, okay? And I can illustrate that right here in this room. Um, I can look at John back there. I'm in a perspective to see his shirt, but I'm not in a perspective to see his shoes. All right. Now Ethel can just glance down to her left. And see his shoes. She's not going to do that because she's too diligent a Bible student and she's paying attention to the message. All right. She wouldn't dream of tearing her eyes away and glancing down at John's shoes. Okay. But she could if she wanted to. And she could see them. She could see what color they are, what size they are, shoelaces or Velcro or slip-ons. I mean, she can see those shoes from where she is. All right. It's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of where we are versus what God has revealed, what God has not revealed, and what God has kept hidden. What God has kept hidden. Remember, it's the glory of God, the conceal of matter. The Father laying out His plan step by step by step, not only for our edification and growth, but also in the outworking of the angelic conflict. We're going to see some angelic conflict coming up here where the uh, He's proclaimed by angels, declared to the nations. And uh, the first thing the fallen angelic world tries to do is murder him. And the word that goes forth from Herod to murder all the babies of Bethlehem, two years of age and younger, the attempt that the adversary makes to kill the seed of the woman. And for 30 plus years, he doesn't know that he has succeeded or failed or any other thing. He's assumed he succeeded for all he knows. Not until the River Jordan baptism event does the devil then alerted to the fact that uh, that he failed in that Bethlehem massacre. All right, and uh, I think some of these concepts are along the reasons why uh, he was given the name of Joshua rather than the name Emmanuel. I mean, goodness, let the kid grow up with some privacy. <laughs> All right, instead of taking the name of Emmanuel and being under the the target of uh, the uh, flaming arrows and so forth. God the Father directed for Jesus Christ to grow both in favor with both God and man in stature and wisdom. And uh, all of the preparation that went into his uh, arrival at the Jordan River uh, when we get to that point of his baptism. So we have this perspective here. We have this perspective. And a verse I love to quote. Have you learned it yet? I take you here about once a month whether you need it or not. First Peter 
chapter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Alright? The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. First Advent, Second Advent. And the Old Testament prophets mentioned here in this verse... They weren't sloppy. They made careful searches and inquiries. They searched the Scriptures diligently. They prayed. They asked. They had prophetic access to the throne. We saw, saw places in Daniel where he was asking more than he was entitled to know. And the Lord would say, slow down there, Daniel. It's not for you. It's sealed up. It's classified. Need to know basis only. You don't need to know. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time. See, are these two different people? <laughs> sure seems like it. This lamb sure seems different from this lion. Are they two different people? Or time? Is it two different times? Two different events? Well, we know now that it was two different events. But they didn't know. Seeking to, determine, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. The blessings we have in the stewardship of the church to have the unfolding, outworking of God the Father's plan in first advent, second advent development. They were not serving themselves but you. They were laying a foundation for us to, to, to build upon and to follow. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We understand that the scope of these hidden mystery doctrines, the scope of this full unfolding in, in Revelation, was kept hidden in part, not only for the Old Testament, the outworking of the Old Testament ministry, but also in part by virtue of the angelic conflict, the angelic beings that are involved as well. Things into which angels long to look. And that would be, of course, both elect angels and fallen angels. You better believe the adversary would have loved to have known this information ahead of time. But, of course, he didn't. The Father kept it, uh, kept it uh, hidden all to his glory. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right? He's saying here, because of all this, be prepared for that second advent. Start looking for that blessed hope. Looking for the new heavens and the new earth, the righteousness to be revealed. Prepare your mind for action. Keep sober in spirit. All right. Back to the study. Before Emmanuel can undertake the work of Emmanuel. That is, before second advent, first advent has to happen. He must undertake the work of Jesus. If the work of salvation, the work of redemption is not accomplished, then what kind of kingdom would he rule over if he were to simply arise and take the Davidic throne and throw down Rome and rule the world? That's what everybody wanted. They rushed to make him king. He could multiply loaves and fishes. He could walk on water. He could do all these things. The people got excited. Said, let's make him our king. But they were not yet redeemed. The work of redemption had not yet been accomplished. The rulers and authorities had not yet been disarmed. The certificate of debt had not yet been nailed to the cross and removed against our account. The work of Jesus has to proceed. Or what does he have? All right. Vocabulary now. Subpoint one. The name Jesus. In the Greek, looks like this. Jesus. That is a capital I E S O U S. Capital I E S O U S. The iota, when it occurs first in the sentence or first in the word, is usually rendered with a Y rather than an I, and so you can transliterate it Y E S O U S. Jesus. 
Number 2424 in the Strong's Greek Index, meaning Jehovah is salvation. It's not a Greek name at all. It comes from the Hebrew for Joshua. The Hebrew for Joshua. Y-E-H-O-W-S-H-U-A apostrophe. Yahashua. Number 3091 in the Hebrew Index. Jehovah is salvation. We have um, the uh, salvation root right here, and then the Yah in front of it for Jehovah is salvation. The verb Yashak means to save or to deliver. Y-A-S-H-A apostrophe. And that apostrophe angles to the left, by the way. It'd be a different letter, being an Aleph, if you angled it to the right. You angle it to the left, and you've got the Hebrew letter Ayan. All right, Yasha, Y A S H A apostrophe Yasha, to save or to deliver. To save or to deliver. Used of earthly rescues, used of used of political deliverances, used of military deliverances. We understand it in the sense of sin and deliverance from sin to be representative of redemption. Speaking of our deliverance from the slave market of sin, the bondage that the human race has been under since Adam's fall. There's no there's salvation in no other name. The gospel message has got to be the message of Jesus Christ. There is no other name that uh, by which we must be saved, says in Acts chapter 4. Before he can take the name Emmanuel, he must do the work of Jesus. And that's important. I believe, second advent, his name will be Emmanuel. I believe when he returns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he has a private name, which only he and the Father are, are, that's his name of intimacy with the Father, but he has another name written on his thigh, which is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I believe at that point, his given name, he will be known to this world as King Emmanuel, the Son of David, ruling this world on his Father's throne. Point five, Joseph responded to the angel's message with unquestioning obedience. Joseph responded to the angel's message with unquestioning obedience. Returning back to Matthew chapter one, unquestioning obedience. Remember, Zacharias had questions and they were doubting questions. Mary had questions and they were excitement questions. Joseph had no questions, just woke up and obeyed. Didn't doubt, didn't debate. Didn't, uh, you know, didn't accuse this angel of, uh, <laughs> of of being false or not knowing what he was talking about or, you know, being drunk or something. I could just imagine, you know, what are you, drunk? The angel shows up to me in a dream and says that, uh, you know, my fiance is pregnant, but she's still a virgin. You know, you kidding me? No, Joseph res- re- responds with faith. Unquestioning obedience. And uh, we'll get into it down the road a little bit. But it's, Joseph's silence at the temple incident when Christ is 12 and when Christ stays behind in the temple and then they think he's lost and then they go back to find him. They find him on the third day. And it, Mary's the one that jumps all over him and starts asking, you know, what is this you've done to your father and I? We've been looking all over for you and all these other things. Joseph is silent in that passage. And... Uh, that's bothered people for 2,000 years now. <laughs> Why didn't he say anything? What was he thinking? And um, the Lord's message to his mother at that time was quite instructive, and we'll deal with that here coming up. But um, just the glimpses that we have of Joseph are remarkable. Here in this chapter and then in chapter 2, when he relocates to Egypt and then he comes back and he goes to Nazareth, he just every time an angel says, do this, he does it. He obeys the Lord. He's a faithful father. And given that we uh, we know that, uh, that uh, the Lord's understanding of Scripture just dazzled the rabbis when he was 12 years old, well, where did he learn all that? I think Joseph was an extraordinary Bible student. All right. Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. The uh, immediacy of this was interesting, too, that the angel didn't say marry her tomorrow. He just says, don't be afraid to marry her. 
And uh, so whatever point in this year-long uh, betrothal it was that Joseph discovered, he went ahead and moved up the, the wedding date to now, effective immediately. But kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And she called his name Jesus. So point A, Joseph woke up and ended the betrothal period with a completed marriage ceremony rather than a divorce. Joseph woke up and ended the betrothal period with a completed marriage ceremony rather than a divorce. You can imagine other circumstances where this might appear. <laughs> the uh, critics would scorn Christ and call him a bastard, and they'd say, "Well, we were not born of fornication." You know, uh, you know, word got around that this one-year betrothal was cut short. Word got around that Mary was pregnant. Word got around that that. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty obvious when the when the wedding license has one date and the birth certificate has another date, and and you can't find you know nine months in between there that that uh, that uh, conception occurred prior to the marriage happening. I mean that's that's obvious in modern times and ancient times. Ended the betrothal period with a completed marriage ceremony. That being that he took her as his wife. In other words, she's transferred from her father's house to his house. They establish the uh, the uh, not just the the domestic living arrangements, but they actually begin now to start to uh, grow together as husband and wife. Meaning, uh, they start praying together. They start reading the scriptures together. They uh, you know go down to Family Christian Store and get all the best uh, child raising books they can get from. Uh, <laughs> all right. I mean, every parent wants to be a good parent and try to read as many books as you can ahead of time. And uh, no parent wants to, to be responsible for, for, you know, screwing up their kids. Imagine how, uh, how much pressure they've got to be under knowing that uh, their child is the, is the redeemer of humanity. Can you imagine? All right. Point B. Joseph and Mary did not participate in marital sexual relations until after the birth of Jesus. They did not participate in marital sexual relations until after the birth of Jesus. Now, theoretically, could they have? You know, it wouldn't have altered the DNA of, of, of the humanity of Jesus Christ one bit in terms of the holy child or the holy thing, the, the, the interesting, the, the holy child as it's called, the reference here in, um, oh, there's a reference to the holiness while he's still in, in the womb, and I forget the exact reference. I thought it was here in Matthew, the child who has been conceived in her. Um. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have changed his sinless perfection. He still would have been born sinless and perfect, without human father, without an Adam's original sin, without a sin nature. But the fact of the matter is, is that Joseph understood the necessity of the prophecy of being born of a virgin, not just conceived of a virgin. It says a virgin shall conceive. Okay, that part's done, and bear a child. Well, a virgin is still the subject of shall conceive and bear a child. So Joseph. Desiring to see Isaiah 7.14 fulfilled. Chose. And this is his volitional choice in verse 25. Kept her a virgin. Literally was not knowing her. This is his activity. His volition. His expression of faith. Alright. Remarkable given our culture anyway and how... Uh, all of the over-sexualization of our society and culture and and uh, and all the rest. And unbelievers, of course, have no biblical standard, but even believers uh, face temptations in that regard and, and all the things there and and so forth. I mean, waiting and saving until marriage is one thing, but a year after marriage? Wait a minute. <laughs> Nine months after marriage? Six months after marriage? All right. 
Yet after this, she and Joseph gave birth to four more sons and at least two more daughters. We understand that. Matthew 13, 55 and 56, and then Psalm 69, 8. The, the Catholics, of course, in their Mariology deny this. The Roman Church insists that as they worship and venerate Mary, the Queen of Heaven, the Mother of God, that she is still a virgin to this day, that she conceived as a virgin, she delivered Christ as a virgin. Roman doctrine teaches that, that the infant's exiting of the birth canal did not violate her virginity and that she continued to, to live as a virgin. Um, that's Roman tradition and it's totally contradicted by verse 25, which says, until. It says, until. It doesn't say forever. It doesn't say kept her a virgin forever. It says kept her a virgin until. And there's a difference between forever and until. Alright? We know that he has brothers and sisters in verses 55 and 56 of Luke, of Matthew 13. There's also parallel accounts in Mark and Luke. Um, when they, they're stunned at his teaching, he's in his hometown, began teaching them in their synagogue. They were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? In the Mark account it says, is this not the carpenter? He not only was his dad a carpenter, but he himself became a carpenter. It is not... Now, it's, it's interesting, too, that there, there must have been dozens of carpenters in Nazareth, but one was known as the carpenter. The number one, the best, the most famous, the most well-known. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, plural, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? All right. Gave birth to four more sons and at least two daughters. Then two of those four sons, James and Jude, will go on to become apostles, would go on to write books of the Bible, the book of James, the book of Jude. All right. The prophecy for this, Matthew, uh, Psalm 69, 8. Psalm 69, 8. Understanding, of course, that this is David's psalm, the greatest type of Christ in the entire Old Testament. And uh, he confesses in verse 5, O God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. Obviously, that's David's confession. Christ would have no part of that. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. In other words, don't let my failure be a disgrace to fellow believers that are walking in grace and trusting in you. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel, because your, for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. Now starting here we see the pattern that is not only fulfilled in David, certainly throughout his life, but also fulfilled in Jesus Christ a thousand years later. For the sake of God the Father, Jesus Christ bore reproach. He bore ultimate reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Applied to David literally, of course, and also applied to Christ literally, prophetically, a thousand years later. Verse 9 seals it for us, where we understand this is not just David in view here. For zeal for your house has consumed me. Think of Christ driving out the money changers. Think of Christ uh, going berserk in the temple, which we're going to be dealing with here. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. All right. Wonderful prophetic psalm of David's, looking ahead, not only describing his own circumstances, but looking ahead a thousand years to the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. All right. We will begin the birth of Jesus next week 
I'm already at the top of the hour, the birth of Jesus Christ, which includes these two verses from Matthew 1, verses 24 through 25. <laughs> you know, we, we can all, I think, appreciate the different authors of Scripture and how different authors will record different things. And by synthesizing Scripture, we get a complete record. Uh, the value that we have, I think, in the infancy narratives, the birth narratives, and so forth. Then we have two gospel accounts. We've got Matthew's approach from the male side of things. In other words, Joseph's viewpoint. We've got the female approach recorded in Luke. And, uh, and I believe that Luke himself interviewed Mary there in Jerusalem during Paul's Caesarea imprisonment. But um, <laughs> the real meat of this study is going to come from Luke 2, 1 through 7. All right, that's where all the information is. There's very little in Matthew 1, 24 and 25, okay? In, in, in Mary's account, of course, she's eight months pregnant, nine months pregnant. She has to ride this god-awful donkey. She's got to go all the way to Bethlehem. Uh, they can't even get room at the inn. They end up in this manger. Um, she, you know, has the baby and it's wrapped in the, in the, in the, uh, cloth, the swaddling cloth, and then all these shepherds come dragging in from the field. You know, this is what you might expect from the woman's viewpoint about childbirth and all of the hassle and all of the anguish and everything she had to go through. We don't have any of that in Matthew's account. <laughs> Matthew's account was basically, well, okay, I married her and we didn't have sex. All right. And the baby was born. That's Matthew's account. But we will come back next week and look at the Luke account from chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and uh, see all of the details that we're very familiar with. I, this, I don't think, is going to be a surprise to anybody next week, but this is the, uh, the classic Christmas story, the birth of the humanity of Jesus Christ in the manger, and uh, we'll see the uh, impact of that next week. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to guide us in this study. And thank you for the perfection of your plan, the fullness of the time when you sent your son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, to be born to fulfill all that you have written, to redeem this lost human race. Thank you for such wisdom. Thank you for such glory. It's uh, foolishness in the eyes of the world, but it is glory and power to us who are being saved. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.